Well, that's uh, one of my favorite songs to sing before we come to the focal point of our time together on Sundays, which is uh, to open up our Bibles and to have the Lord speak to us. And that song just uh, informs us, reminds us of all that uh, is involved in the preaching of God's Word, uh, what the Word is, uh, how it should impact our lives, uh, how we should live as a result. And so, um, as you know, uh, we spend the majority of our time together on Sunday mornings in God's Word going through books of the Bible. And that is just a, a personal conviction that I have that God inspired His Word. Uh, and uh, because it's inerrant, uh, without error, infallible, right, that we should study it the way it was delivered to us by His Holy Spirit. And so that seems to make sense that we go through books of the Bible rather than have a bunch of bits and pieces of the Bible. Most uh, Christians today, it seems like uh, you quote a verse and say, you know, can you help me finish this verse? And they know the verse. And then you say, well, where is that? And nobody knows where the verse is, right? Because they've been taught all their lives uh, messages that were just a, a scripture from here, a scripture from there, a scripture from there. And there's no cohesiveness to their understanding of God's word. And so uh, books of the Bible seem to be the way to go in helping, giving people a comprehensive understanding of God and His Word. And so we just finished the book of Romans, and uh, I asked you to uh, pray with me and to make any recommendations as to where we should go next, and I appreciate uh, all the different uh, suggestions that you made, and uh, some of the suggestions um, that were made uh, were where my heart was going, and that was to... Uh, tackle the, the books of First and Second Peter. Seems like a, um, a, a very practical place to be in God's Word in the season uh, that we are in our country, uh, where I think there's going to be more and more of a, a target uh, on Christians and the church. Uh, the book is all about persecution and how to remain steadfast in that, and also to uh, win people over to the gospel without a word uh, through your testimony, through your example. And so I'm excited to uh, head in that direction. Don't turn there right yet because we're not going to start today. Sorry. Some of you are already there going, all right, let's get after it, right? Well, before we do First and Second Peter, rather than just jumping from one epistle to another, I thought it would be helpful for us to go back to the Old Testament and consider one of my favorite Old Testament books that, again, I think would be very practical for us to consider uh, uh, in this season of our lives, the season of our country, season of our church, and that is the book of Esther, seeing the providence of God in everything that's going on in our lives, in our world, and uh, don't start going to Esther now because we're not going to do that yet either this morning. <laughs> Lord willing, we'll start that next Sunday, and so you're just going to get up frustrated and leave, right? You're like, what's this guy doing uh, jerking our chain? Well, I had written down in my calendar knowing that we, we were going to have Resurrection Sunday, Sammy Sunday, and then Baptism Sunday, that it wasn't until today that I could actually get into whatever we we're going to do next. And I'd put in my calendar to either begin Esther or to preach a message on preaching. 
And I just thought, you know, we, we, just, uh, we just preach all the time. And, and every once in a while, it's good to be reminded of why we do that. Why do you come on a Sunday morning with your Bibles and sit there waiting for me to tell you where to turn? And uh, we go there and we spend uh, 45 minutes to an hour looking at a, a verse or a passage together. Uh, why do we do that? And, and what goes into that? And so as I wrestled back and forth with what, which of those to do this morning, uh, I got pushed over the edge this last Friday because, as you know, uh, we're going through the book of Nehemiah in Ironman on Friday mornings, and this past Friday, we studied Nehemiah 8, which is my favorite chapter in the book because it, it's one of the most stirring examples in the entire Bible of expository preaching describes a, a revival that took place among God's people as a result of the explanation and application of God's word. And uh, Bruce Milne, in his helpful little systematic theology titled Know the Truth, said this, quote, nothing is more calculated to bring renewal of life, vigor, and faith of the church in any generation than the unleashing of God's everlasting word in the midst of his people through the ministry of expository preachers anointed by the Holy Spirit. Ezra was one of those expository preachers who was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was a scribe who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it to others. It says, that, it says so in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. And uh, he was invited by the people to bring the book. I love that expression, which was likely the book of Deuteronomy. It says the book of the law. And to read it and explain it to them. They had just finished uh, rebuilding the walls. And apparently they still had their tools in hand. And so they constructed this special podium for him to stand on. And when he opened the scroll, everyone stood to their feet. And listened attentively from early in the morning until noon for seven days straight. I guess you could liken it to a week-long Bible conference is what they had. The question is, what was so intriguing? What was so compelling about Ezra's message? Well, I think it's simply stated in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. Nehemiah, or excuse me, Ezra, along with his uh, helpers, it says they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so they understood the reading. I think that verse contains really the essence of expository preaching, that they gave the sense so that they understood the reading. In other words, they explained the Bible so that people understood what it meant and how it applied to their life. One commentator said this, Ezra and his helpers were the first in a long line of expository preachers who explained the Bible. This method of preaching has been blessed by God down through the centuries and continues to be an effective instrument for bringing Christians to spiritual maturity. Topical and textual preaching may often be inspiring and helpful, but the spiritual benefits do not compare with those resulting from a preaching ministry like Ezra's. And then he said this, blessed indeed are the believers who are privileged to sit under expository preaching of the scriptures. Now, sadly, fewer and fewer believers these days are sitting under expository preaching. And what's worse, not only are they not hearing it, but they've not even heard of it. 
If you were to ask the average churchgoer today, what is expository preaching, you might kind of get uh, a clueless response. Uh, because the only thing they've ever been exposed to are sermons that offer practical advice about the relevant issues that we all have to deal with in life, getting along with your spouse, raising your kids, managing your finances, battling addictions, you know, those kinds of messages. And if they are ever exposed to sound doctrinal preaching, they have an initial aversion to it because they feel like it's way over their head and they don't, they don't get anything out of it. It's not relevant to their lives. Most people, it seems, if given the choice, prefer listening to light, upbeat, entertaining talks filled with lots of jokes and stories and visual aids and all sorts of helpful life hacks. In other words, they're not interested in preaching that, in their minds, fails to connect with their everyday lives. In fact, that was the contention of a liberal pastor named Harry Emerson Fosdick, who in an article he wrote um, in July, the, the July 1928 issue of Harper's Magazine, and, and, and the article was, what is the matter with preaching? And by the way, everyone wanted to hear what this guy had to say about preaching in his day because uh, he was one of the original seeker churches, if you will. He viewed preaching as group counseling. And uh, he had a church in New York City, and, and as, it, as the story goes, people would line up for hours before the services to get in, and the place was just packed out. And so in many people's minds in that day, he was the authority. He knew what he was talking about, and he knew what was wrong with preaching. You want to hear what he had to say? Many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. They take a passage from Scripture and proceeding on the assumption that the people attending church that morning are deeply concerned about what the passage means, they spend their half hour or more on historical exposition of the verse or chapter, ending with some appended practical application to the auditors. Well, at least he understands and knows how to define expository preaching. But then he said this, could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? Who seriously supposes that, as a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation cares to start with what Moses, Isaiah, Paul, or John meant in those special verses, or came to church deeply concerned about it? Preachers who pick out texts from the Bible and then proceed to give their historical settings, their logical meaning in the context, their place in the theology of the writer, with a few practical reflections appended, are grossly misusing the Bible, end quote. Now, granted, any preacher who gives a dry, lifeless theological lecture on the original meaning of the Greek and the Hebrew that only focuses on the lexical and the syntactical and the historical cultural aspects of a particular passage of Scripture, but never clearly explains the relevance of that passage to his listeners and never exhorts them to apply the practical implications to their lives, he has not done his job well. And I think one of the best ways that a preacher can serve his listeners and help them get the most out of his sermons is to let them peek behind the pulpit 
to see what goes into the crafting and communicating of a sermon. It probably has never crossed your mind, but the more you know how a sermon works, how it's developed, how it's delivered, the more you'll get out of it. For example, it will make it easier for you to follow me if you know where I'm coming from and where I'm going. And if you haven't figured it out yet, like most preachers, I'm very predictable. I pretty much do the same thing every Sunday, and it might sound like a broken record sometime, um, but the positive side is it can be very helpful to you if you know, okay, I know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to give an introduction, and then he's going to bring it down to some, to, uh, well, first of all, I read the passage, he's going to read the passage, right? Got to start there. He's going to read the passage. He's going to pray. He's going to give an introduction. He's going to bring it down to the the main point of the passage, the thesis statement. He's going to tell us there's going to be four somethings, three whatevers, and and, and he's going to tell us why we need to listen to this, and then he's going to go through the outline, the three points, the four points, and then he's going to bring it down to, to a conclusion with some application, and then hopefully share the gospel somewhere along the way. Is that pretty much what I do every Sunday? I came across a book uh, years ago called Surviving the Sermon, a guide to preaching for those who have to listen. <laughs> You're like, amen, Where, can we get that in the resource center? I, gotta, I wanna read that book. This is what he said, those who listen to preaching deserve and are even responsible for some understanding of what they should be hearing and what they can be listening for. It is essential for all who share in the ministry of the word to have a clear and mutual understanding as to how that ministry unfolds. In other words, I'm not the only one in the room that should understand how a sermon is developed and how it should be delivered. You should know that as well as I do. The the, the author went on to say this, our appreciation for a play, a dance, a symphony, a poem, or an athletic event can be enriched by some understanding of the dynamics of the medium. For example, I just thought of Melanie Stevens, who I hear has some background in opera. Is that right? And so if I go to an opera and I list, sit there listening, I guarantee you it's a whole different experience than what it's like for Melanie to go to an opera. And she's sitting there, right, and she gets it. She knows exactly what is going on on that stage, what it took for that, that singer to prepare and to get there, and then even when different parts of the song say, okay, here it comes, I know what she's going to do next, I know what the, you know, you, she knows, why? Because she understands the dynamics of opera. I don't. So I'm just sitting there like a, a lump on the log, you know, like when I went to the Phantom of the Opera, and I had no clue what was going on, other than making my wife happy. And uh, that was really all that mattered anyway, right? You see, when you understand the dynamics of preaching, you'll be a more active participant rather than a passive observer. Knowing how a sermon should be shaped and shared will enhance your ability to appreciate and apply sermons. And so with that goal in mind, I want to basically preach a sermon on sermons. 
That may sound weird, but I want to take you behind the scenes and show you how I come up with a sermon every week. And I think it's important that you understand that a sermon is not some secret, private, mysterious thing that I don't get in my study and I go, oh, cool. okay, Lord, I need another one. You just, just tell me what I'm supposed to say and you know, kind of wait to hear his still, small voice or whatever. Um, I think some people assume that you know, that's what pastors do. They get in their study on Saturday night and they go, okay, Lord, I got to figure something out. And uh, you know, it can't sound too much like last week. And so I got to have something a little fresher. But there are some basic principles for developing and delivering a sermon that I use every time I preach. And if, if you're having a hard time getting your mind around, where is he going this morning? Uh, in the days of the DVDs, it's kind of weird to think that we're saying, like, those are past now because everything's streaming now, right? So who's bought a DVD lately? It's like we just downloaded on, on the computer, right? Well, in the DVD day era... One of the things that was my favorite part of a DVD was not the movie itself, but the extras, right? They used to have like little things you could click on. And, and one of the, some of the most fascinating parts was the, the behind the scenes look at how they made the movie, which sometimes is even more fascinating than the movie itself. Like you watch Mission Impossible, for example, and you, and you watch them, then you get to behind the scenes how they did those stunts and how they pulled that off and the camera angles. And, and sometimes it's very, you know, like I said, it's more interesting than the movie itself. I hope you'll be able to say that when this is all over this morning. Is hey, that was more interesting than his normal sermons. Because it was like the behind the scenes of a sermon. So... What I want to share with you this morning is two steps, okay? Two steps in developing and delivering a sermon that when understood will help you get the most out of the sermons that you hear. And before we get to those steps, and you, hopefully you've got your outline in front of you, you see where I'm going with that, I just want to remind you or at least inform you that there are at least three types of sermons, basically, three types of sermons. There's a topical sermon, there's a textual sermon, and there's what we call an expositional sermon. A topical sermon combines an assortment of verses from all over the scriptures to teach a particular subject, issue, or theme. Uh, however, there's a tendency for verses to get skimmed over or worse, get ripped out of their context and used to make a good point, perhaps, but not the point that God intended from that passage. In churches where topical sermons are the norm, uh, typically few, if any, feel the need to bring their Bibles because they never are encouraged to reference their Bibles. Uh, in many cases, the, the verses referenced are conveniently displayed on the screen, so you don't need your Bibles. Um, a textual sermon uses a verse or a passage uh, as a springboard for the preacher to teach whatever he wants to teach that day. And too often a verse or passage is forced into a pastor's theological system or saddled up for the pastor to take a ride on his favorite hobby horse. And in churches where textual preaching is the norm, Bibles are faithfully brought and reverently read at the beginning of the sermon, but then they lay open on people's laps and are never looked at again. I think you should ask yourself two simple questions which can help determine whether or not your church or a church is committed to biblical preaching. The first question is, do people bring their Bibles to church? Whenever we go on vacation and visit another church, that's the first thing I observe as I get out of the car. And I wanna, I'm looking around as everybody's going in, I want to see how many people are actually bringing their Bible. 
I'll never forget the, the night that uh, Tyler Jacobus and I went to hear R.C. Sproul at the Montgomery County Convention Center there, or the Lone Star Convention Center, I guess it is. And uh, I'll never forget getting out of the car, and there was people, man, they didn't just have their Bible. They had, like, books, and they had, like, bags, and they were just carrying these things in to go hear R.C. Sproul. And I looked at Tyler and I said, okay, we just found all the serious Christians in Montgomery County. And, and they, they came loaded for bear. They were ready to study the Word of God. So do people bring their Bibles to church? Number two, do people have to look down at their Bibles during the message? That's a good indication. Do you, do you have to look down at your Bible during the message? If, if, you, if you don't need your Bible or you can't follow along in your Bible, that may be an indication that the sermon is not coming from the Bible. Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, he said this, quote, you need to avoid a church where the preaching does not clearly come from the Bible. Sometimes the preacher announces a text but never really comes back to it and or makes only passing references to any other verses from the Bible. The kind of church you want to be a part of is where when the Bible is read at the beginning of the sermon, you can be confident that what follows will be built upon it. And again, it's very intentional. It's very deliberate. Before I say anything in a sermon, I want to read the text. Because that is the foundation of the sermon. That's the point of the sermon. And it, and it drives me, it's a reminder to me that I'm not here just to kind of get up and share my ideas, my opinions, my thoughts, but I'm here to explain a text of scripture and help you understand it and how it applies uh, to your life. An expository sermon is based on a verse or passage in the Bible and the subject of the sermon and the structure of the sermon comes straight from that verse or passage. And again, the role of an expositor is to read a verse or passage, explain what it means, and exhort people to apply it to their lives. The aim of an expositor is to explain the meaning of a verse or passage in its historical grammatical context, that is what the original writer was saying to the original audience that he was writing to, and show how that original meaning applies to the present day audience. And so the task of an expositor is not to come up with his own message, again, where he shares his own thoughts and opinions, but to clearly and accurately deliver God's message revealed in that particular verse or passage. It's like a mailman who faithfully delivers the mail already written by someone else to the mailbox. That's, all, that's the only job. It's not, not to, oh, this letter was kind of, I'm going to add a few of my own thoughts and ideas and before I stick it into the mail. No, he's just delivering that sucker. It was already written by someone else. His job is just to get it there. Or like a waiter. Uh, their job is to deliver the meal that was already prepared in the kitchen by the chef to the table without messing it up. He doesn't show up and he goes, I think that he's a little more salt, you know, pulls the salt shaker out of his, you know, he doesn't doctor the food on the way to the table. He just brings it and sets it there. 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about how we need to handle accurately the word of truth. And so a humble expository preacher realizes that he simply serves as a mouthpiece for God, which is a high and holy calling which 
fills my heart with fear and trepidation whenever I get up here. But Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9, when Jeremiah was uh, questioning why God had chosen him or called him to be a prophet, he said, hey, don't sweat it, Jeremiah. I have put my words in your mouth. You don't have to worry about what to say. You may not be, you know, mature. You're a young guy. Uh, you may not have all the knowledge and information you have, but don't worry. I put your words in my mouth or my words in, in your mouth. Second Corinthians 5.20, Paul said that, that we are ambassadors uh, uh, for Christ as if God was appealing to people through us to be reconciled to him. I love what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He was commending uh, and thanking the, the believers in Thessalonica. And he said this, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And of course, Paul exhorted Timothy to preach what? The word. Not your own ideas, not your own opinions, not your own thoughts. And then 1 Peter, Peter said in 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. John Calvin said pastors are the very mouthpieces of God. John Stott in his helpful little book called The Preacher's Portrait said that in true biblical preaching, the voice of the preacher is ultimately drowned out by the voice of God. It's a great image there. And then Wayne Grudem in his Bible doctrine, uh, he said this, quote, throughout the history of the church, the greatest preachers have been those who have seen their task as being uh, to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. Essentially, they stood in the pulpit, pointed to the biblical text, and said, in effect, to the congregation, this is what this verse means. Do you see that meaning here as well? Then you must believe it and obey it with all your heart, for God himself, your creator and your Lord, is saying this to you today. It's a great definition, if you will, or description of expository preaching, which, by the way, is modeled and illustrated in both the Old and New Testaments. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. Ezra is, is the great example. I already mentioned him. But are you aware of the fact that Jesus was an expositor? You've heard it said that um, God only had one son and he made him a preacher. You could maybe improve on that and say God only had one son and he made him an expositor. Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, He came up alongside those two disciples who were scratching their heads trying to figure out all that just had happened. And uh, it says this, then beginning with Moses when all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And then later when he left and they recognized him, finally, oh, that was, that was Jesus. This is how they described it. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And Paul obviously was an expositor as well. Acts chapter 20, verse 27, 
He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was talking to the elders in Ephesus about his ministry there, and he was saying that his preaching was not just a bunch of bits and pieces of the Bible. His, his sermons were designed to systematically teach people everything in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Well, at that point, Genesis to Malachi, right? And so in light of this biblical pattern of preaching established by men like Ezra and Jesus and Paul, I agree with the conclusion that this man, R.B. Kuyper, said, or made, he said this, you ready for this? Quote, it is a serious error to recommend expository preaching as one of several legitimate methods, nor is it at all satisfactory to extol the expository method as the best. All preaching must be expository. Only expository preaching can be scriptural. I hope you share that conviction. And with that, that was just kind of just setting the groundwork of what is expository preaching. What, what are the, getting back to the point of the message today, what are the two steps in developing, delivering an expository sermon? Well, First, the preacher must carefully analyze a verse or passage and correctly interpret it using the literal historical grammatical method of interpretation. We're going to talk about that for a second. That's referred to as hermeneutics. That might be a new word for some of you this morning. Uh, Secondly, the preacher must clearly synthesize or organize that verse or passage and creatively principalize it in order to explain what it means and how it applies today. This is what we know as homiletics, okay? So these are the two steps, hermeneutics and homiletics. So let's look at these, Uh, and again, this is a a subject that you could take a week every day, right, all week to to unpack and explain and and, and give detail of, and I'm just going to try to do it in the next uh, 20 minutes or so, and so understand we're just scratching the surface, but hopefully uh, it will just give you uh, some helpful information uh, that will come in handy whenever you sit under the preaching of God's Word. So first of all, step one is hermeneutics. And w- one way to uh, describe hermeneutics is, is, is that you need to scrutinize the text. You need to scrutinize the text. You need to analyze it, and you need to interpret it. Now, we know that the Bible was written in a different language, a different time, uh, in a different culture, and these differences or gaps need to be bridged to get to the proper meaning of a text. And before you, you know what a verse or passage means to us today, you need to know what it meant to the original audience first. And a good rule to remember is that is a passage can never mean something it never meant. In other words, don't get trapped in one of those home Bible studies where the leader says, okay, what does this passage mean to you? Well, frankly, I could care less what the passage means to you because that's not why the passage is in the Bible. I want to know what the passage meant to Paul or to Peter or to Moses or to Malachi or whoever you're studying. That's what matters. So hermeneutics provides us with the tools to properly interpret the original meaning of a passage. The process is called, ready for this, another uh, word you may have never heard before, exegesis, 
which literally means to lead out, to unfold, to describe, or to interpret. Interesting, in John 1, that word exegete is used to describe Jesus exegeted the Father. The Son unfolded or described or explained God the Father. So exegesis is studying a verse or passage of Scripture under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let's not leave him out of the process here. He's the one that inspired the text to begin with. He knows it better than anybody else. And that's why you'll hear me pray often on Sunday morning, Father, or, or I actually address the Spirit. I said, Spirit, would you, you're the one that wrote this text. Would you help us to understand this text? You, you inspired it, now illuminate us to, to understand it and, and, to understand, and to make application of it in our lives. So, so exegesis is studying a verse or passage of Scripture under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to uncover its meaning by using the principles of interpretation. That's how you could describe hermeneutics. It's just the principles of interpretation, how you interpret uh, a passage of Scripture. And so there are five basic hermeneutical principles that you need to apply to a text to determine the meaning that was in the writer's mind when he wrote it. It's what's referred to as the authorial intent, the author's intent. What did the author mean? Not what you think it means. What does the author mean it to mean? So what are these five principles? Well, first of all, is the literal principle. As you look at a text, as you scrutinize a text, you analyze a text, you need to determine the normal, natural meaning of the text instead of allegorizing it or spiritualizing it and making it mean something that God never meant it to mean. So the literal principle. Secondly, the grammatical principle and that is you get into the grammar of the verse or the text, and you inv investigate the individual words in the text. You define the meaning of the most Im important terms. That's what's called a, a lexical study. Lexical is words, study of words. And then you analyze how those words are put together to form phrases and sentences and paragraphs and, and, and decide what the writer was suggesting to the to the minds of the readers. That's what we call syntactical study or, or syntax, right? I know this is like, you know, causing you to, some of you to break out right now because it's junior high grammar class, right? And, and you hated that. But you had to learn about words and syntax and conjunctions and how to, how, how about this, how to, um, um, what do they used to call that? Diagram a sentence. Remember how challenging that was? They actually teach you that in seminary how to diagram a sentence so that you know who the subject is, what the verb is, what the, what the, the, uh, the, the prepositions are, um, you know, so that you don't get it all confused. Um, you, in other words, you know the main points of the text. It's helpful. For example, we use this as an illustration all the time, the, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And then the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, even to the end of the age. How many times have you heard a pastor get up and, and pound the pulpit and says, God wants you to go. God wants you to go. This passage is all about going. Well, is that what that passage is all about? Is that the main point of that passage? What's the main point of that passage? What's the main verb? Make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching 
are what are referred to as participles that support that main verb of make disciples. Again, just a little grammar there goes a long way in not missing the point of a passage. So you've got the literal principle, the grammatical principle, you've got the historical principle, which is simply researching the culture and the geography uh, related to the author, the readers, the city, the, the church in that city, the time the text was written. And then you've got the contextual principle, number four, which is where you examine what comes immediately before and after the text, along with where it is in the context of the entire book, and, and also the Bible as a whole. So it's been said that um, context is king. Oftentimes that determines the meaning of a particular verse or passage is, is where it is in the context of that particular book or where it fits in the context of the entire Bible. That, that little phrase, location, 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 doesn't just apply to real estate okay, and buying property. It's like, where is this passage or where is this verse in the Bible? Location, location, location. So you need to study the context and understand the context. And then finally, number five is the analogical principle, which is a fancy name for cross-referencing. You, you, you know that. What cross-referencing is, right? You search other, for other passages of Scripture that shed light on that text and help clarify its meaning. And we know that the Bible never contradicts itself. So if you arrive at an interpretation in one verse that contradicts the truth taught in another verse, then you came up with the wrong interpretation. It must mean something else. And I think it's also good to to keep in mind that there's only one interpretation of a text, but many applications And so when you're studying God's word, it's okay to say, okay, what is the meaning of this text? Don't say, hey, what does this passage mean to you? It only means one. It can't mean a bunch of different things to a bunch of different people. It only means one thing. But it's okay to say, hey, how does this passage apply to you? How did it impact you personally? And whenever I preach a message, it's like I hand out identical gift boxes to everybody in here, and you all have your little gift box, it looks exactly the same. You heard the same sermon from the same text that had the same interpretation, the same point, but you go home and you open up that box, and guess what? What's in your box might be different than what's even in your spouse's box, or your kid's box, or the other people in your grow group box. And so when you come back together during the week, to meet up with your grow group and you discuss the sermon and what the whole goal of that is not to necessarily argue about the meaning of the passage. It's already been interpreted by the pastor and hopefully he got it right. That's that's a secondary issue at this time. Now we're talking about, let's take it to the next level. How should that change the way we live our lives? And how that impacts your life might be different than the person sitting next to you. And that's what's so exciting about sitting around discussing a sermon is to see how God's word is impacting people's lives. And somebody might say something and go, wow, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're right. I got to do that too. I need to change that area in my life as well. So these are the basic rules to follow when exegeting a verse or a passage of scripture. So the diligent exegete or expositor 
gains information for his interpretation by reading the English text. That's where it starts, just reading the text over and over again, just observing what's in the text, just to get a general knowledge of the text, and then perhaps look at the the Hebrew or Greek text, if you're able to do that, uh, to look for repeated words or unusual words, and uh, and to understand the grammatical structure of the passage, uh, then you maybe start looking at some commentaries, maybe some more technical, lexical, grammatical commentaries where you can, uh, they can help you see some things maybe you missed in your own observation. Then you look at uh, some, I like personally, devotional commentaries that uh, give me some insight uh, into what other great expositors uh, have, have said throughout the centuries about a particular passage and there's oftentimes great illustrations or applications, and then maybe you pull off yourself a Bible dictionary or an encyclopedia. I know all this is might be online for you in your Logos like software program, but I'm an old school book guy. Um, but uh, you know you find uh, lots of historical background in in dictionaries, encyclopedias, maybe even introductions to commentaries. And after all these sources have been consulted, a proper interpretation of the text can be made, okay? So that's number one, is the hermeneutics. The hermeneutics of scrutinizing a text and coming up with with its meaning, okay? Um, That, to me, is the most important part of the study process, the preparation process, is making sure you don't miss the point of the text. You want to make sure you got that right. And then once you are confident that you have the, the, the accurate interpretation of that text, then you move to the step two, which is called homiletics. This is where you synthesize the text. You organize it in order to present it. And so this is where you organize all the information that you've gathered, right? all your study notes, you bring them together, and, uh, and, you, and, you, and you figure out how I'm going to present this to those who are going to hear. Someone said this, an exegete is like a diver bringing up pearls from the ocean bed. An expositor is like the jeweler who arrays them in orderly fashion and in proper relationship to each other. Right? So, the, you know, you're just bringing up this thing from the, you know, you brought up the, the, the pearl. Right? There's the pearl sitting there. And you could just throw the pearl out there. But man, how much more beautiful is when you put it in a setting, right? And, and you, you, you think about how and you maybe complement it with some other things and, 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 and there is this beautiful setting. I guess another way to look at it is the difference between going over to somebody's house and uh, maybe they decided to um, you know, have you over for dinner and uh, you know, so uh, let, I guess uh, they just, you sat down to eat and they just put out all the ingredients on the table. And, and in other words, they were unprepared. They were disorganized. They were just they're out there. Yeah, okay, you, here it is. Here's the makings of a meal. And uh, help yourself. As opposed to them coming out with the plate, right? And it's all, you know, displayed beautifully and garnished. And, and, uh, and, and they set it down in front of you, and it smells good, and it's like, wow, I want to I bite into that. That's, it's very uh, much more attractive, much more appetizing, rather than just throwing a bunch of raw ingredients at you. So this is the homiletics process, the process of homiletics, organizing the exegetical data from the passage 
And I think the best way to do that is accomplished through a couple means. First of all, you need to be able to say the sermon, if you will, or the text in a sentence. You'd be able to say it in a sentence. So you need to craft a what you probably learned in, uh, again, learning how to write essays uh, in, in your English composition class in high school. Um, I actually learned uh, some of the most important principles of preaching from Dr. Giblin, um, my, I think it was a, when I was a junior, uh, my English composition teacher, who drilled into us introduction, thesis statement, body, conclusion, introduction, thesis statement, body, conclusion, and guess what? I use that every week. Uh, and by the way, I hated writing essays when I was in high school, and I have to write one every week now. And uh, it's just uh, interesting what you learn and how God prepares you for what he's called you to do. But you need to, first of all, creatively craft a thesis statement that summarizes and principalizes and applies the interpretation. In other words, the main point. Okay, this is a one-sentence, what we were taught in seminary, called a plural noun proposition. In other words, there's some kind of a statement, it's a proposition, but it includes a plural noun, like, I want to give you four challenges, or there are three commitments, or there are two principles, or two steps, right? There's a plural noun uh, involved in this proposition. And again, you're, you're pulling this out of the text. And so first of all, it has to summarize the central theme of the passage or the writer's main point. It has to boil everything down to the bottom line. It needs to explain in a nutshell what is happening in that passage. Secondly, it must, take, uh, must make the text come alive by principalizing it. And, and, and it needs to state the writer's central theme and a timeless truth that, that practically applies to the contemporary audience. It has to bridge the historical cultural gap between the original hearers and the present day hearers with some kind of relevant principles. And finally, it must be practical in its application. It must answer the question, so what? And not that you would ever do this, but sometimes it's helpful if I just view all of you guys sitting out there like this going, so what? So what, Kent? You just preach, so what? How should that change? Why should I listen to you this morning? Well, what should I do with what you just said? So it needs to answer the question, so, so what? And it has to provide some kind of hook to grab and hold the attention of the listeners. In other words, what, what are you going to get out of this sermon today? For example, if you understand these two steps to developing a sermon, you're going to get more out of the sermons you listen to. That's the hook. That's the, the takeaway, if you will. So that's the first thing is a, a thesis statement or a, some kind of propositional statement. Say, say it in a sentence. But secondly, along with that thesis statement, you need to formulate an inductive outline which reflects the grammatical structure of the text. This is the, the subpoint. So the, the thesis statement is the main point, and the outline are the subpoints. In other words, the, the, the syntax of the passage, in other words, how the nouns, verbs, how they're put together, the conjunctions, the buts, and the therefores, uh, you know, 
dictate the organization of the message. And so you need to carefully dissect the passage to find the skeleton. It's there somewhere. To ensure that the, pa- the message follows the writer's flow of thought. And um, occasionally I think an outline may take a more logical or thematic approach. Just, just better. It just seems to fall off the bone in a more logical thematic way than just kind of look for a wooden outline to follow. And so this inductive outline and the plural noun proposition or thesis statement, I think are the key to being able to clearly, concisely, and accurately understand the verse and passage, which in turn is the key to being able to clearly and concisely and accurately preach the passage to others. The prayer I typically pray at the beginning of my time in God's Word to prepare for a message is, Lord, would you help me understand what this passage means and how it applies to my life so that I can help other people understand what it means and how it applies to their lives? Because I can't do the latter if I don't have the former. If I don't understand it, how am I going to help anybody else understand it? And I'm not, if I'm not applying it in my life, I don't see how it applies in my life, how am I going to help you apply it in your life? So the question that every preacher should ask himself is this, what is the clearest, most creative, most compelling, most convicting, most practical way of explaining what this passage means and how it applies to people's lives today? This is where titles uh, and introductions and illustrations and conclusions, they play an indispensable role in how a sermon is organized and presented. And this step of organizing the sermon is very important, it's very time-consuming um, when it comes to the art of crafting an expository sermon. And, and, and oftentimes, this takes me the longest time. The, the studying is relatively easy. That's the easy part, if you will. It's the most important part, but it's relatively easy because you're just applying the principles of interpretation. It's like a science. You get in there and you study the meaning of the, the passage, but then you take a step back and you've got all, these, all this information that you've gleaned, and now you're saying, okay, what am I going to do with this? And sometimes it just takes a lot of prayer and thought to say, well, and, and you know, sometimes it means you've got to go out and mow the yard. And you're mowing the yard and you're processing all this thing and mulling it over and all of a sudden, boom, it hits you when you finally get to your backyard. And you're, and you're like, okay, that's what I want to say. And that's really what Paul was saying. And, um, but I think how well a, a preacher accomplishes this step is what makes the difference between a, a good sermon and a great sermon. So the goal of hermeneutics or exegesis is to determine the main point of the passage. The goal of homiletics or exposition is to make sure the main point of the passage is the main point of the message. Let me say that again, okay? The goal of homiletics, step two, is to make sure the main point of the passage is the main point of the message. Or you can say it this way, the main point of the message is the main point of the passage. I'm sure you've had the experience like I have going to a church and some guy got up and he read a verse and uh, he went off and preached this great message. It was really, a really a good message and everything he said was really true and, and, and really helpful. And, uh, but that's not what that pastor was talking about. <laughs> that's not the main point of that passage. 
And sometimes people will say, well, Ken, you, 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 you preached on this subject this morning and this text and this subject, and, and man, you, you didn't like really, what about this? And, and you didn't balance it out with this. Or I'm like, well, stick around for a few years and we'll get to that passage. And it'll get balanced out in your mind and your heart and your theology. But this morning we were focused on this. And this happened to be talking about, you know, the, 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 the responsibility of man and salvation. And the, all the Calvinists were like, hey, you sounded like an Arminian this morning, Ken. What's your problem? Are you changing on us? Like, no, that's the point of the passage. I do believe that God is sovereign in salvation. And there's other verses that talk about that. And we'll talk about it when we get to those verses. Now, I need to say one more thing that if I didn't say, I'd be remiss if this was not included in our thinking when it comes to expository preaching, and that is this. An expository message or sermon should always point to the person and work of Christ. If he's the main point of the Bible, you should get around to Jesus somewhere in that sermon. Again, we're we're talking about context, the, the overall context of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus Christ as God's son and his, and his purse, who he is and what he did on the cross for us so that we could have salvation. And so Christ should be center, centered in our preaching. Paul highlighted the centrality of Christ in preaching when he wrote these words to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I wasn't up there to impress you with my intelligence or my eloquence. Man, it was just simple, straightforward gospel preaching. Paul's point was that all preaching boils down to Jesus. And while Jesus is not in every text, and we have to be careful not to read him into every text, uh, I think you can creatively come up with a way to include him in every sermon. Spurgeon used the illustration. Obviously, he was a minister in, in London. He said, Every little pathway and roadway in, in England leads to London. And his point was every little roadway or pathway in the scripture leads to Christ. Although we've all read Spurgeon at one time or another, particularly his morning and evening, and we're like, uh, I don't know if I see that in that passage. <laughs> But he worked really hard at making sure Jesus got in there, right? Um, Again, there's a balance in that. Donald Whitney said, since Jesus Christ is the main message of the Bible, all messages preached from the Bible should relate either directly or indirectly to him. Every sermon should point people to Christ as the only one who makes it possible for them to put into practice what they just heard. And the ultimate application of every sermon is either get saved or be more sanctified. And guess what? Jesus Christ is responsible for both salvation and sanctification. And so therefore Christ must be lifted high as the great savior and the great sanctifier of our souls upon whom all of us must depend to do what God has said in his word. 
And so if you want to know if you have prepared an expository sermon or have heard an expository sermon, I think you can ask yourself three questions to evaluate. Number one, has the text been clearly explained? Has the text been clearly explained? Is it understandable? Check. Number two, has, have I been compellingly exhorted to apply it? Have I been compellingly exhorted to apply it? In other words, is it applicable to my life? Check. And then thirdly, has Christ been creatively exalted as the only way to do it? In other words, did the, did the preacher just kind of leave me with another to-do list that I've got to carry with me into this next week? Or did he give me hope that I can do that because of what Christ has done? And ultimately, it's not what I do, it's what Christ has done. If you can answer yes to those three questions after hearing a sermon, then it was a true exposition of Scripture, faithfully developed and delivered by the preacher. And I would strongly encourage you to never settle for any kind of preaching that doesn't come straight from the Bible. But when you know you've heard a faithful exposition of God's Word, then it is your duty to embrace it and to put it into practice in your life as if God himself had preached it that morning or that evening or on that podcast. I'll close with this. J.I. Packer said, congregations never honor God more. You could say Christians, churches, Christians, individual Christians, never honor God more than by reverently listening to his word with a full purpose of praising and obeying him once they see what he has done and is doing and what they're called to do. May God grant us grace to be those kind of listeners who ultimately honor God by not just being hearers of the word, but doers. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in a different way this morning, kind of more of a, maybe a, a classroom setting today, more than a message or sermon itself, but I think this um, type of message has a place, a sermon about sermons, so that we can get more out of the sermons that we hear when we gather together as your people. And so, Lord, would you... Uh, Just continue to grow us as a church to have a higher and higher view of you and a higher and higher view of your word and that we would be like the the, the people in the book of Nehemiah uh, who clamored, who who desired the the preaching of, of your word. And Lord, that we would come every Sunday with anticipation for what you're gonna say to each of us so that we can change and grow to become who you want us to be. Ultimately, so we can bring you honor and glory and praise as we are more and more conformed to the image of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.